long time to be on your knees. You need to stretch out. I will also ask you to stand as we read from God's Word. might help you as well. We're going to be in Matthew 6, 1 through 18 this morning. You can find it in your Matthew journals on page 30. I'll also have it up on the screen. Sorry about that. Jeff must have given me something about ears up here. All right. Let's dive back into the Sermon on the Mount, listening to God's Word for for us this morning. Matthew 6, 1 through 18. Jesus continues preaching. This is what he says. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen, and then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, they think they're going to be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for their father, your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our, doubt, our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their face to show others that they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. This is God's word. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, like Psalm 19 invites us to pray, may these words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts in this moment be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We started Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount a few weeks ago with Matthew chapter 5. And so before we dive into chapter 6, I actually want to take a moment to recap what we've seen of the kingdom so far. You see, Jesus started his sermon with blessings, blessings that we call beatitudes, blessings that describe the character of kingdom citizens. This countercultural kingdom character is something that affects who we are and what we do. It is something that is core to what we do as, as kingdom citizens. It is who we are, but it also affects what we do. And what we do is we influence, right? We, we point more and more people to Jesus. Jesus describes us as the salt of the earth and the light of the world, and we influence people to follow Jesus by the way that we live. And so after talking about character and about influence, Jesus goes on to correct an assumption that, that might be creeping into the minds of his listeners, He he wants to be clear before them that he's not getting rid of what God has said, but is fulfilling it. He is doing what God has commanded of his people. But there's another truth that, that 
hides behind that. The truth is that Jesus always goes first. The character and influence of the kingdom is always founded upon the Christ of the kingdom. He is the one who fulfills God's perfect law. But Jesus doesn't stop his sermon there. It doesn't mean that we do nothing. Jesus has fulfilled the law, but that doesn't mean that righteousness is absent from his kingdom. In fact, it is something that courses through his kingdom. It goes deeper than what we do all the way to what we think and feel, which is why we get into the the next section, the section that Pastor Bill was preaching on this past week, kingdom righteousness. Because this kingdom is not just about behavior modification. It is about heart restoration, about making a kind of people. And so Jesus drives the righteousness of the law all the way to the inside, elevating righteousness higher than and going deeper than the most socially and culturally relevant examples of righteousness for his audience, the Pharisees. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom, Jesus says. In other words, kingdom righteousness is on another level, a deeper level. Jesus ends that section saying, be perfect like God. Which makes me want to close the book and say, okay, Jesus, then I'm out. I'm not going to make it. I I really can't make it. Which is true if we're supposed to do it on our own. The kingdom, though, is not on your own. Jesus himself says it starts with repentance and turning to him. It continues by clinging to him. Jesus is being provocative in this sermon, not because it's not true, but because he wants us to see how desperate our situation is without him and draw us into a a compelling and beautiful picture of his kingdom. You see, there are many of us who read the second half of chapter 5, and we get bogged down in each section, despairing of how short we fall, which, which in some sense is good and right. The problem is, we never look up and see the face of Jesus. The Jesus who died for us to have new hearts. The the, the Jesus who by his spirit draws us to him and continues to shape us with his kingdom righteousness. And so as we continue this morning and we get into our passage in chapter 6, I want that reality to stay in front of you. Despair, yes, you can't do this alone. But joy, yes, because Jesus is with you every step of the way, shaping your character into kingdom character, preparing you to influence with with love and mercy people to follow the king. He is our righteousness who penetrates all the way to our hearts, revealing what's there, healing what's broken, and shaping us daily. Which is why in chapter 6, Jesus does his um, Jesus thing and mixes it with some kind of preacher jujitsu in our passage, saying, be righteous, but be careful of righteousness. Which, all right, Jesus, which is it? Be careful of the sin that still lurks in your heart and has the tendency to pervert righteousness into unrighteousness. Because now Jesus is getting into kingdom righteousness 2.0. Righteousness unlimited. Righteousness that doesn't just want us to do better, but to do better in a better way, in a godly way. Our righteousness must go deeper than the most religious people we can imagine. Not just behavior change, but heart change. And that means that we have to know what's actually going on in our hearts. And Jesus, in his typical way, is about to show us what that looks like. Listen to what he says in verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you won't have a reward from your Father in heaven. He's transitioning from talking about deeper righteousness now to warning us about righteousness. 
it, it's almost like uh, beware of your righteousness because like Jeremiah says, our, our hearts are deceitful above all things. We are still battling sins and, and kingdom citizens can twist the good things of the kingdom into something that makes us look good. Be careful. Be wary. Beware of doing good in front of other people. Wait a second. Does that sound familiar? It should. I want you to look back at chapter 5. A few weeks ago, Jesus said the same thing in chapter 5, verse 16, where he actually tells us to let your light shine before others, that they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus, wait, what? Let them see, but, but wait, beware of doing to be seen. Again, Jesus switches it. And when? How? I think both passages are talking about the same thing with one difference. You see, both passages are talking about doing good works in order to be seen. They both talk about that. But the difference is, Jesus didn't forget what he talked about earlier. He's not talking out of both sides of his mouth. The difference is found in the second half of both verses. Look at chapter 5. The result of others seeing kingdom righteousness is God's glory. Let it shine, people see, and God is glorified. But in chapter 6, Jesus is warning us of doing our righteousness in order to be seen. And I think he's setting us up for what he's going to do in the rest of this passage. The end result in this, the point, is not God's glory, but our own. You see, Jesus is warning kingdom citizens against kingdom righteousness that is done not just in public, but purposefully in public in order to put on a show. You see, this is the dark side of kingdom righteousness. It has to go deeper than outward behavior from what you do to what you think and feel. But you can also think and feel unrighteously about righteousness. Shows how perverted and twisted our sinful hearts can be, huh? I'll say it another way. In the comparison between chapter 5 and, verse, and chapter 6, Jesus, in chapter 5, verse 16, when he says, let your light shine before others, he's, he's actually protecting us against our tendency, our sinful tendency to fear others. In chapter 6, I think Jesus is protecting us our, against our tendency, our sinful tendency to elevate ourselves. You see, between the command of chapter 5 and the warning of chapter 6, Jesus is inviting us to a, a kingdom righteousness that has neither others nor ourselves at the center, but God alone. One commentator explains this tendency by pointing out that, that as humans and in our sin, we, we tend to hide when we should show and show when we should hide. Kingdom people are new creations. That is an old way of life. Jesus is inviting us to be public and to be anonymous at the right time, in the right way, in order to point people to the only true king. This is Jesus' point in our passage this morning. What is he warning us about, though? It's not just beware of doing this, like just stop it. But he's saying there's a consequence to you living like this. Losing your reward. If you do, if you do this for show, to be seen and praised by humans, you're going to have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now you might be going, okay, Jesus, I'm not sh- Why are you talking about rewards? Shouldn't, shouldn't we just be good because it is good? Like, isn't, aren't rewards sort of selfish, sinful? Are you like bribing me with candy right now, Jesus? Like, I don't understand. Not according to the scriptures. Growing up, my dad really wanted me to have good grades. Immigrant dad... Lots of expectations and everything that comes with that. But I remember in elementary school that my dad would pay me for my grades. No joke. Every A was $10. Every B was 5 Every C was disappointment. 
No, I'm joking. But he was giving me a kind of reward. The problem was that it was not a true reward. Some might even call it a bribe. But the reason it's not a true reward is because it's not tied to the activity. Grades do not normally result in some kind of paycheck, at least not in the schools that I went to. But then I did keep up my grades, and when I went to college, I earned a scholarship. A scholarship, on the other hand, is a true reward because it is tied to my grades. This is sort of what I think the Bible is getting at when it talks about rewards. You see, the Bible doesn't describe the Father giving us riches in heaven because we were nice, or a mansion because we were selfless. The Father's rewards match what He is rewarding. And so, in one sense, we need to change our definition of reward and look at what is a true reward, not just getting something we would like for doing this act. But the second thing is we also have to see these rewards as good rewards. And what I mean by that is that a reward, actually, in Scripture, is a word, something that multiplies goodness in your life. Now, you guys have heard me say this before, but, but I, I've never run a marathon before in my life. This isn't something that runs a marathon. I think that marathons are one step below torture, but there is someone on, sta- on staff that recently ran a marathon, and they were telling us about their training, and they said something that was super interesting here. They said the training was, was really hard, and there are some days they didn't want to do it, but what surprised them most was that the training actually was affecting other areas of their life. The endurance they were building helped them endure tough situations. The discipline they were practicing translated into being more disciplined with other habits. Part of the reward of training was not just completing the marathon, but becoming the kind of person who completes a marathon, who endures, who is disciplined. Rewards in the Bible are true. They match up with what they are rewarding, but they are also good. They, they multiply goodness in our lives. They make us into a kind of people. But then my last point here in this redefinition of rewards is that they're, they're true, they're good, but they're also biblical. They're, they're, for some reason, we have made rewards into something that we believe are unbiblical, are selfish, are self-serving, as if working for a reward is bad. But the Bible has no hesitations about promising rewards. God promises rewards, true rewards, good rewards. The problem with rewards is not being motivated by rewards. The problem comes when you think that the world's reward is better than God's. Verse 1, Jesus gives us this big point. Beware of doing your righteousness before others. You won't get a reward from your father if you do it like that. But then the rest of the way, he explains a little bit more. And so here's, here's the, the way we're going to walk through our passage this morning. I wanted to set up those things before we got into it. But in the rest of our passage, Jesus drives his point home with three illustrations, right? Three, three examples, three applications, Right? This is Kingdom Righteousness 2.0. And so he goes after three practices, giving to the needy, praying, and fasting. I don't have fancy point names for you this morning because Jesus is preaching. So I'm just preaching about what Jesus is preaching. So it's really hard to get cute with it. Giving to the needy, praying, and fasting. And I think what he does as he goes through this text is he reveals our hearts as he's also revealing the heart of the Father. You see, I don't want us to just see this Jesus point about, about unrighteous righteousness here. I want us to also consider together how the way we live out our spirituality, our walk with the Lord, is more than just checking boxes on a list, but a way that the Father shapes us into kingdom citizens. 
So let me start where Jesus starts, with giving to the needy. Look at verses 2 through 4. And I want you to pay attention to the structure he's using because he's going to repeat it over and over again. And I'll explain it here in this first one, but he's doing something on purpose. Verse 2 says, so when you give to the needy, notice Jesus' word choice. Not if, but when. Right? Jesus is assuming that this will be part of the daily life of his people. So, so when you do this, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received a reward in full. But, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So let me walk right through. Look at the structure. Jesus is going to repeat this multiple times. He begins with the warning. Don't give like this. Then he gives the consequence of this warning, of ignoring his warning. If you do, you've already received a reward. And then he teaches, he instructs, instead, give like this. And then he finishes with this confidence, this trust we should put in God. If you give like I'm teaching you, then the Father, your Father, will reward you. That's the structure. Warning, consequence, instruction, and confidence. And he repeats it over and over again in our section here. There's a rhythm to his teaching. And so I want you to get into that rhythm. I want you to first listen to his warning. Don't give to the needy with a bunch of fanfare and where everyone can see you. Don't, don't give like these hypocrites. Now, you might be wondering, okay, Eric, what's, what's hypocrites? I, I know what the word means. But later in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus uses the same kind of language. But this time, he's actually aiming it at someone. He's talking to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You hypocrites. Now today, a hypocrite is anyone who says one thing and does another. That's how we describe that word. But, but the provocative nature of Jesus' teaching here is that he's calling out these religious leaders and, and really anyone who uses religion to try to look good as an actor, as someone who views the world as their stage and that everybody is in the audience, as someone who thinks the spotlight is on them and they just really love playing a part, lying about who they are, Acting as if they are someone else, putting on a show. Do not live out the righteousness of the kingdom as if it is some show, as if you are playing to an audience for applause, constantly redirecting the spotlight to make sure it hits on you. Do not be like the hypocrites, Jesus cautioned. And he's going to give three different examples, but the point is going to be the same over and over again in each of these applications. The question is, who are we doing it for? Is the world our stage? How do we try to make the light shine on us rather than let the light shine through us? How do we illuminate ourselves rather than God through our actions, even through our spiritual practices? You see, that's, that's so twisted about what Jesus is attacking here. Previously, Jesus is, is, is fixated on, on unrighteousness, right? On, on things that we would normally call sins. But now, Jesus is saying that even our righteousness can become a problem. Even the most righteous acts, our good desire to give to the needy, can be twisted by sin to serve self rather than God. You see, kingdom righteousness is righteousness unlimited. Righteousness that turns unrighteousness right side up but also righteousness that does not let itself be turned upside down again. Don't do in order to be seen. Do in order for God to be seen. Jesus is going after what, what motivates our actions, and he starts with giving to the needy. And, and when Jesus is talking about this, he's not just being like generous in general. He's talking about generosity that relieves pain and suffering in someone else's life. 
when we do this in order to be seen, like, like actors that are trying to get into character rather than people that are living out kingdom character, the only reward we get is the praise of people. Look at what he says. They have received the reward in full. He'll repeat this phrase multiple times. They will receive the reward completely. You, you get the receipt. You got what you wanted. You do for the praise of people, and the praise of people is what you get. You get what you want. The problem is that what you want is not nearly as good as what God promises. We fight to get the praise of people so often, and it feels pretty good right now, but, but God offers something that's so much better, something that actually lasts. Because if, if you have ever experienced this, trying to get the praise of people, it doesn't last very long. They tend to move on to someone else that's bigger and better. Or just, God forbid, you make a mistake. God offers a truer, better, and more biblical reward. And the approval of God is grounded not just in, not in what you do, but in Jesus. In Jesus, who by his spirit is shaping us into a kind of people through these acts of righteousness. This is why Jesus not only warns us about it, but actually tells us how to practice this righteousness in a way that it stays righteous, recognizing what's actually happening in our hearts. Will you trust who you are? what you value, and where you get your praise from, to the world or to your heavenly Father? Instead of giving like an actor, would you give like a child of the king with what one scholar calls uncalculating generosity? That's a provocative statement. Jesus uses this like, really spicy illustration here where he says, like, hey, I want you to give in such a way that not even your left hand will know what your right hand is doing. That's how in secret he wants you to give. Now, some people have taken this to say, well, I shouldn't tell anyone what I'm doing. Accountability is actually sinful. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. I don't think Jesus is telling us to be irresponsible stewarding what God has given us. Don't avoid being accountable. There are other scriptures that tell us about that. But I think Jesus is getting at this kind of practice. When you give, uh, give out of muscle memory. Here's what I mean when I say that. I think he wants us to give reflexively. Not giving an opportunity for our hearts to take that and turn it into how good I am. Athletes, if you think about it, they don't just get by on raw talent. At, at some point, they have to practice. And they don't just practice by playing game after game. They practice by doing the same movement over and over again until it becomes muscle memory. Until they don't even have to think about what they're doing. I heard someone once quote Ray Ortland saying something similar about golf. Now, I don't play golf anymore because my father-in-law like, just wrecked me once, and I'm never having that again. But, but golf is pretty simple in the sense that I, what you have to understand in order to golf is fairly easy to understand mentally. Golf is not, it, it, it's not so much about trying to understand the game. It's about being actually able to play the game. It's not so much about getting the game into your head, but getting what's in your head into your body. God has been so incredibly generous with us in the gospel. He has brought us into his kingdom, and in some ways that is incredibly simple to understand. Even if the riches of the gospel will keep amazing us for eternity. But kingdom living is not just about getting the gospel into our heads. It is getting what's in our heads and what's in our hearts into our bodies. 
giving to the needy, loving the poor, those who are suffering by tangibly and practically meeting their needs is a reflex that is cultivated in and through the gospel. Kingdom citizens have traded out the applause of people for the rewards of God. And one of the habits that helps us practice this is uncalculating generosity. A practice that gets the gospel not just into our brains, but into our bodies. That communicates the gospel to the least of these, not just in word, but in deed. It is this kind of practice in giving that the God who sees in secret rewards. Now think about this. Thinking about God seeing us in secret might make you go, like I did when I first read this when I was younger, that like God is some kind of cosmic cop just waiting for me to mess up. Just waiting to see if I get it right. Like if someone noticed that I did something nice, that like, shoot, lost my reward. Like someone noticed it and then like it wasn't in secret. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think God is, is not just trying to catch us in our sins. I think God is watching like a father does who is cultivating in us kingdom character. You see, with my girls, there are often things that I say to them and repeat to them and repeat again to them because it doesn't seem like they're getting it. But the joy that I get when I'm sitting in a different room and I hear one of my daughters tell the other daughter the thing that I keep telling them, like, let's work out the problem together. They don't know I'm watching and listening, but I'm watching their character being cultivated. I think that is what's happening here. And Jesus doesn't just stop at giving. He goes on to praying, which I kind of told you, it's like, hey, take it easy because I know that my prayer life is not great. But Jesus really hits hard in this one, so buckle up. Look at the same structure. Look back at the text. Verse 5. When you pray, there's that when again. Not if you pray, but when you pray. Do not be the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, you go into your room, you close the door, and you pray to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You hear the warning? Don't be like the hypocrites. Praying in public, at church, and on the corner in order to be seen. Jesus is actually being pretty funny here. Because these are people who want to be seen so badly that they adjust their schedule so that when the Jewish times of prayer come, they just so happen to be on the street corner. I, I guess I, and then just get a little bit louder to make sure that people hear them. These are people who want to be on the stage in life so badly that they manipulate every stage they get, even in their synagogue, away from God into a platform for their personal brand. Jesus is warning here. Is, is not against public prayer, because if that were true, then his own prayers in public would be a problem, and the prayers of the early church in Acts would be a problem. No, I think Jesus' example, uh, 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 like Jesus' example in giving, the problem is not the act, and it's not even the act being done in public. It's why the act is being done in public. To be seen, and then what are hard to do with that? Twisting what should point to God to point back at us. We play act rather than act out of kingdom character. And so the same consequence applies. People's praise is all you get. And so instead, Jesus teaches, pray in secret. Now, I don't think Jesus is again saying here, only pray in secret. But I do think he's saying, don't only pray in public. You see, a righteous public prayer life is something that must be the overflow and outworking of a rich private prayer life. A righteous public prayer life must be the outflow, the overflow, the outworking of a rich private prayer life. 
When we pray, whether in public or in private, we pray to God. Pretty simple, but that sounds silly to even have to say that. But too often we pray in public as if we are praying to the people that are listening. You know that prayer when you hear it in your small group. When someone's not praying to God, but praying to the group about something very specific that they think that person should do. And you're like, are you having a conversation with me right now while we all have our eyes closed? Or are you actually praying to the God who's listening? I've done that before. I've needed to repent and confess of that before. I mean, prayer has an audience of one, even if there are thousands that are listening. Why do you think Jesus teaches us to pray in secret? It's not because it's the only right way to pray. I think it's because the practice of praying in secret trains our hearts. There are less temptations to show off when no one but God is watching. And like the muscle memory of uncalculating generosity, we need to practice the muscle memory of honest prayer. And so Jesus continues to hit hard about prayer. It goes to a new illustration this time. Now we're not talking about hypocrites. We're talking about pagans. Verse 7, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus introduces this provocative comparison of pagans, of Gentiles, of non-Jewish people who worship other gods. The warning here to not be like them is a warning to not do what they do when they pray, which the text says is babbling. They, they, they repeat themselves over and over again. They are, they are trying to get what they want by, by tiring out their gods, like a, a kind of cosmic nagging that ends in the deity finally giving in. It, it, this kind of prayer at this time was notorious, not just for like, piling up phrases, but piling up the names of multiple gods, hoping to hit on the right one to answer, like, like a, a god roulette, hoping to hit the jackpot. But that's not how disciples pray. It's not how children of the king talk to their god. Now, again, to be clear, Jesus is not against public prayer, and I also don't think he's against long prayers or even repeating ourselves in prayers, because Jesus himself prayed all night, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, he repeats himself. Jesus is not even against being persistent in prayer because Jesus tells story teaching us to be persistent in prayer. No, Jesus is against the idea that you have to multiply words in order to get God to listen. That we have to say the right word or phrase in the right way and for the right amount of times in order to get God to hear us. Jesus is against praying long and repetitive prayers believing that they get you a hearing with God. And the reason Jesus is against that is because it preaches a false gospel it communicates that we have to do the right religious things in order to be in relationship with him but that's not who god is remember jesus is talking to disciples here they are people that have been brought into god's kingdom by god's grace they are people who stay in his kingdom by god's grace grace that leads to a life of obedience not from a life of obedience and so i want you to listen to why jesus warns against this kind of prayer He makes a very clear and compelling, but I think surprising statement here. Don't repeat yourself over and over again as if you have to nag your father to get what you want. Why? Because he already knows what you need. Prayer is not an attempt to coerce God to do what we want. Prayer is not a a daily brief where we inform God about what's going on in our lives. He already knows. Prayer is a conversation with God. Where he realigns us with himself and we live out our relationship with him. Believing that he's a good father who wants to give us good gifts and all we have to do is ask. 
Do we pray like God is someone we have to convince to love us? Like we have to get the right combination of words and details to be heard. Worse yet, do we pray with our lips but not with our minds or our hearts? Just just babbling on because it's religious, not because it's right. You see, this can happen whether we write down our prayers or pray spontaneously. Right? We can easily read from an old prayer or a script without actually praying. We can also easily string together a bunch of religious phrases when we pray spontaneously without actually talking to God. But really, how are we praying? Like the hypocrite, to be seen as super spiritual in our groups? Like the pagan, thinking that we have to hit on the right formula to be heard? Or are we praying like kingdom citizens who see God as the father that he is, rather than as someone to be part of our brand or a small g God to be manipulated. It's why for Jesus, it's not enough just to be warned away from that kind of self-serving or coercive prayer. Jesus needs to teach us to pray, and that's exactly what he does. He wants us to get clear on who God is and how we pray reveals what we believe. Jesus starts, this then is how you should pray. How, not what. The prayer we're about to look at It's something that's been prayed verbatim. We've even prayed it here before. There's nothing wrong with praying the words of this prayer. But but Jesus is not giving us something here just to repeat mindlessly. I think that would be contrary to what he just taught. What Jesus is giving us is a way to pray, a, a rhythm and a pattern that connects our hearts to God in relationship. A, a true understanding in head and heart that he is a father who knows what we need before we even ask. And so Jesus' instructions teach us who God is, and then they reorient us to him and his kingdom, and then finally they align our needs with his provision. The reason I'm breaking this down is that this prayer is rich, and I, it, it, there's a lot here for us this morning. You can't imagine how much, I, how much I had to cut yesterday just to make sure we got out in time. But I do want to press on three things in this prayer. I want to press on who God reveals himself to be, in teaching us to pray, how he orients our lives and hearts to him and his kingdom, and how he aligns our need with his provision. Because it falls in line with Jesus' first verse talking about beware of practicing your righteousness because the way that you practice your righteousness reveals what you believe about God and what you believe about other people. So look at how Jesus begins. Our Father in heaven. Not just your Father, because that's what he's been saying this whole time, but when you pray, you say our, because we don't pray alone and we don't pray apart from the community of God's people, whether we are praying in a small group on a Sunday morning or in a secret room, we pray in continuity with and solidarity with our familia in Christ. In other words, we pray our because God has made us into an hour. And we pray to our Father in heaven. One scholar writes that the entire gospel is summed up in that opening line, calling him Father because he has made us his children by what Jesus did on the cross dying and coming back to life for us, dying for our sins in our place so that we no longer need to be separated from God as rebels, but brought back into relationship with him. We are not praying to some God out there somewhere, some, some king that's just sitting on his throne. We are praying to our father in heaven. This is who God is. And when you pray trying to be seen as someone super spiritual or trying to babble to get that God in your graces, you misunderstand who God is fundamentally our Father in heaven. Do we pray to who God actually is? 
after Jesus opens the prayer, establishing this identity as, as an hour, as a community, and as a family speaking to our Father, he, he starts to teach us to make six different requests, three that are vertical and three that are horizontal. And so with the vertical, I think he's orienting us, reorient us, us to God and to his kingdom, and with the horizontal, he's aligning our needs with his provision. So let's go through them. I'm going to try really hard not to speed up the way I talk, but we are going to go through this section quick for your sake because I can, I can do this all day like Captain America says. Sorry, that was super nerdy. All right. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Notice the pronouns he's using. Your kingdom come. Your name needs to be hallowed. Your will needs to be done. Jesus is focusing our attention on who God is, and then he keeps it there. Prayer is not primarily about getting what we want or what we think we need. Prayer is a practice that reorients us to who God is and therefore who we are. Hallowed be your name. May your, may your name be hallowed. Holy. Not, not made holy because his name and his character, who he is, is already holy. But may it be seen as and recognized as and treated as holy. This is the prayer of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness who mourn the unrighteousness of the world and the unrighteousness inside themselves and know that God is the only one who can make things right, who are desperate for him. Hallowed be your name. But then he continues, your kingdom come, your will be done. John has already announced the kingdom of God. Jesus has been proclaiming the kingdom, but Jesus is teaching that citizens of this kingdom, they want more. They want it to spread. They want it to expand. They want it to grow. They want it to affect all of creation because kingdom people know what that means. It means that his justice and mercy and grace and goodness and love and truth will spread with it. More people will find healing and health, freedom and faith. The request for God's kingdom to come is a declaration that we agree with Jesus that that is what's best. Better than the kingdoms of this world. Better than the kingdoms we all work so hard to set up in our own lives. His kingdom is better. And his will is better. We pray that earth would align itself with heaven that people would be rescued from sin, that people would live like, he got, like God made them to live. These are the requests Jesus teaches us to start with because as we meditate on what it means that he is our father, that who he is and what he does is good, that we want it to spread, he aligns us with his kingdom purposes because we are also asking to be made into people who treat God as holy, to be made into people who obey him as king, to be made into people who live out his will. It's why I think Jesus is teaching us to pray in this way, because this is the kingdom way, aligning ourselves to him rather than thinking that he needs to align himself to us. But that doesn't mean that our needs don't matter. And this is where I'm so grateful for Jesus in the way that he teaches, because the next three requests are horizontal because he knows what we need, and so he teaches us how to ask for what we need. Look at verses 11 to 13. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Notice the shift in pronouns. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now give us, forgive us, lead us not. Jesus is teaching us to ask for our needs, but he's being very specific about talking about physical, relational, and spiritual needs. We need him to provide, and so he teaches us to ask, give us today our daily bread. It is a recognition that all of that comes from the hand of God. It is a recognition that all we need, everything that we need to sustain us comes from him. Theologians get pretty cute here and explain that Jesus taught us to ask for our needs, not our greeds 
or our bread, not our cake. But the point is pretty provocative here, if you think about it. And we can easily avoid it if we don't just stop and think here, because in our day and age, we tend to forget what it means to ask for daily bread. We tend to think in terms of annual bread. We forget what it means to depend on God. And I wonder if we have elevated self-sufficiency so high in the name of personal responsibility that we don't even have a category of praying as Jesus taught us to pray here. Because we don't actually need God all that much. No, I don't, I don't think Jesus is teaching us to trash our retirement accounts. But I do think he is showing us how to recognize that God is our provider, not just for our spiritual needs, but for our physical needs. And teaching us to ask not only for daily bread, but for a posture that does not worry about tomorrow. That does not try to store up manna like the Israelites did in the Old Testament, just in case God doesn't come through. Are we the kind of people who actually need God? Or are we just play acting? Jesus turns from teaching us to ask about our physical needs, and then he starts talking about relational needs. And it gets pretty sticky here, and I wish we could spend more time, but I am going to hit on what Jesus says because he says he's teaching us not just give us, but but forgive us. Asking for God's forgiveness, a, a relational act that keeps us in relationship with God, that reminds us of the gospel. But then Jesus does something that I'm like, oh, Jesus, I wish you hadn't done that part. Because he ties our forgiveness to the way we forgive others ties our relationship with the Lord, with our relationship with others. God, may you forgive us as we forgive others. Look at verses 14 through 15. Jesus presses this point. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. At that point, I'm like, Jesus, that feels like a mic drop. I don't know why you kept preaching. God won't forgive us unless we forgive other people? Is Jesus saying that our salvation is dependent on forgiving other people? Close, but not quite. Sort of, but not really. And here's what I mean. If we were to take this passage on its own, then yes, that's really the only way to see this text. But this passage is not on its own. It's in a gospel where Jesus begins his ministry with a call to repentance, not a call to just do better. And it is surrounded by scriptures that teach us that salvation is a gift from God by grace alone through faith alone. So, so what is going on here? I think the best explanation for this is a story that Jesus tells in Matthew 18. He tells this story about a servant who owes a huge amount to, uh, of money to a king. And the, the king forgives him his debt and, and he lets him go. The guy's super grateful. But as he leaves and he's on the way home, he runs into someone else who owes him money. Who owes him a lot less money than he owed the king. But instead of recognizing what just happened... And passing on the forgiveness he received, he throws the guy in jail trying to get him to pay. The king finds out, because kings tend to find out, and the unforgiving servant is then thrown in jail and his debt is put back onto his account. And you're like, Jesus, you really don't know how to end stories in a happy way. Because like, okay. Forgiving others is a matter of deeply understanding and internalizing the forgiveness that God has shown us. In other words, forgiven people forgive people. And when we don't forgive, we demonstrate by our actions that we don't really understand what's happened between us and God. When we truly understand our sin and what God has against us and how much he has forgiven us, the issues we have against others, they look tiny in comparison. 
But when we see their issues, their sins against us as just huge, impossible to forgive, we demonstrate by our refusal to forgive that we don't truly understand our own sin. We minimize our sin when we maximize the sins of others. Now, when I say that, I really don't want you to hear me say that we should pretend that people's sins don't matter. That justice is irrelevant. That evil can just be swept under the rug with some jacked up understanding of forgive and forget. What I am saying is that if you refuse to forgive others, if you're holding grudges and you're trying to turn forgiveness into some kind of limited reserve, I only have so many I forgives you before we're, to hand out before we're done. My invitation is that you might bring that pain and frustration before the Lord that he might heal you of what's happening, that he might put you back together, that he might show you what it means to forgive righteously, not unrighteously, because there is an unrighteous way to forgive. He teaches us to pray, forgive me as I forgive others. Make me into someone who forgives, not someone who ignores evil, not someone who invites the evil of bitterness and resentment into my heart with my lack of forgiveness. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us of our debts. And then the final horizontal request, lead us, but deliver us. Lead us not, but deliver us. Look at verses 11 through 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You recognize that Jesus is saying this two chapters after he has been led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Just to give you a little context. So what is he saying here? Jesus is not teaching us to ask for something that God has already promised he won't do. James 1 tells us that God does not tempt anyone. He does not try to get us to fall into sin. But James 1 does also teach us to consider trials a source of joy because after standing the test, there is a reward. You see, God is not tempting us to fall, but he tests us to refine us. That doesn't mean we should go hunting for tests as if there were some kind of objectives in a game or goals on our annual performance review. No, Jesus is teaching us to pray like he prayed in the garden. If there's any other way, please let this cup pass from me. And yet not my will, but your will be done. Lord, please don't allow us to be in situations where we will be overwhelmed by temptation and give in and embrace sin. But when testing does come, would you deliver us? Would you protect us? Would you protect us from the one who's actually trying to get us to fall, the evil one? In this final request, Jesus is teaching us about reality. God tests in order to show what's really in our hearts, to cultivate hearts dependent on him, while the evil one tempts in order to further twist our hearts and curve us in onto ourselves. And so, Lord, protect us from the evil one who prowls around trying to destroy us. I want you to notice that the vertical requests actually lead into the horizontal request. We don't just talk about who God is and, and recognize his identity. We are aligned with God and his kingdom, and that reminds us to be dependent on him for everything. It teaches us to ask because we actually believe that he actually cares if he is a good father. Jesus teaches us to pray in a brief and beautiful way. And in such a way that our hearts are shaped every time we pray. How do you pray? So far, Jesus has taught his disciples how to give to the needy with uncalculating generosity, how to engage in honest prayer. But I don't want to neglect the last couple verses in our text because a lot of people neglect these kind of passages. We don't talk about fasting all that time in our churches. In fact, one of the books that I read on the Sermon on the Mount literally just skipped this section without even a note to say why. 
So Jesus has one more example for us. Look at verse 16. When you fast, there it is again, Jesus, when, not if, but when. Jesus is assuming his kingdom people will fast. And so it makes me wonder, even in my own life, but even in our church, why so many of us have ignored it. Fasting has been a spiritual practice of the church since the very beginning, and at its core, fasting is a practice that shapes us as people who follow God rather than our appetites. We set aside a specific amount of time to focus our attention and our body on God by abstaining from food. Simple definition of fasting. Some people make it specific, chocolate or coffee. Others make it non-food, TV or social media. But at its core, fasting is a practice where we practice saying no to our appetites and saying yes to God. We're not denying the importance of the body. In fact, we're elevating it. We're disciplining our body, not just our minds, to obey God. And so we practice with food so that we're not overwhelmed with our appetite for, for sex or for power or for approval. We have exercised the muscle that teaches us to deny ourselves and live for Jesus. Remember my uh, marathon analogy? Now I'll also say this too. Food can be a really delicate subject. We can have unhealthy eating habits. There's also toxic relationships with food that we need to be freed from, that the Lord needs to work on us. And fasting is not something that I, I look in Scripture that is commanded by Jesus. And so I don't think that fasting is actually wise for everyone. But what I do think is wise for everyone is to consider the question, how do I practice and prepare for my fight against sin and obey the command of Jesus to deny myself? How do I practice and prepare for my fight against sin by obeying the command of Jesus to deny myself and practice doing that? That's the core of fasting. And so with that whole context, look at Jesus' warning and instructions. We'll go through this quick. I promise. I know I'm over my time. Do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received the reward in full. But when you fast... Put oil on your head, wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Same structure. He warns us not to fast like hypocrites that look somber, right? He's using a play on words here, actually. The hypocrites, they, they purposefully disfigure their faces so that they're unrecognizable in order for others to recognize them. Don't do that, Jesus teaches, because the consequence is that they have their reward in full. Instead, He's teaching, do what you normally do to take care of yourself daily, even when you're fasting, so that the spiritual practice is not obvious, so that you are not tempted to play act for everyone to look at and see how spiritual you are. Because God sees and God rewards. And when you do it like this, you proclaim that you prefer that he sees. You prefer that he rewards over other people. Our Father is making us into a kind of people. The kind of people who show when tempted to hide because it brings him glory. That it brings others to him when we show when we're tempted to hide. Shine your light. But he's also making us into a kind of people who hide when we're tempted to show. Because we are training our hearts to love him above all else. Familia, which way do you choose? Jesus made a way back to God by his death and resurrection. He's given new hearts to all who repent and believe. But I think this, this passage is a wake-up call reminding us that our sin that was paid for by him is still trying to get its claws back into us. Our sin twists our righteous acts, loving others and trying to grow in Jesus into self-promotion. But the gospel is for always. Not just to get into the kingdom, but to continue to live the life of the kingdom. 
The gospel shapes us into people who show when we are tempted to hide and hide when we are tempted to show. And so my prayer is that the gospel might bring us to the despair that teaches us to acknowledge that even our good deeds can be twisted by our sin. But through that brings us to the joy that Jesus gives us new hearts and teaches us and empowers us to live out the righteousness of his kingdom. I want us to be obsessed with God more than ourselves, more than others trusting that he will take care of us and that he will take care of others through us. Be careful. Entrust yourself to him who rewards, the one who saved us and will bring us all the way home. Practice your righteousness now, not as a signpost to your kingdom, but to his. And trust that he is making you more like Jesus every time you secretly give, secretly pray, and secretly fast. Because in secret, he sees, he shapes and he cultivates his kingdom people. Not so that they stay secret, but so that they keep pointing people to the kingdom. Will you pray with me? Our Father who is in heaven, we are grateful for who you are and what you have done to make us part of your kingdom. We remember that we were dead in sin, but because of Jesus, we are now alive. And so we long for your name to be seen as holy. That the whole world, our neighbors, our co-workers, our family, our friends, that they might acknowledge you as holy God, as good and in humility, like, like you humbled us, turn from their sin and believe in you that you might make them into your children. We pray for your kingdom to come in our community, our neighborhood. Would you show your love, mercy, and grace through us? Would you communicate a new way of life through us? May your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. The rebellion of sin In so many, we plead that you might turn it into the repentance of faith. Lord, we confess, even as we talk about the sin in the world, that we don't always depend on you. But this morning, we ask together that you would give us our daily bread, that you would provide for our physical needs, you would provide for the needs of those among us who live check to check, those who are not sure if they're going to make rent or pay the bills, that you might teach those of us who have more than enough to be an extension of your generosity in the life of this family. Teach us all to depend on you day in and day out. And Lord, would you forgive our sins? Our sins of pride and and lust and, and greed, letting our appetites rule us. Teach us to say no to sin. Forgive us as we forgive other people. Show us how to be forgiving people, especially when it feels impossible. And, and Lord, please, would you lead us not into temptation? We entrust ourselves to you. We, we ask for, for less opportunities to fail you because we are weak. Would you protect us in our weakness from the evil one who wants to destroy us? Lord, we do not presume on our own strength. We trust in your protection. We are your children, and we know we are safe in you. And so we pray that you would teach us to practice our righteousness in the right way at the right time for your glory and not our own. We pray all these things in your holy name. Amen.